Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Bill Pomerantz, and welcome to the Kennan Institute and our event on protest culture in Ukraine and Belarus, differences and commonalities. Uh, the protest movement in Eastern Europe are in Eastern Europe are now considered milestones of political change. In addition to the Georgian Rose Revolution and the Ukrainian Maidan, Belarus has now contributed its own metaphor stemming from protesters call to be like water and constantly change the place of protest uh, throughout the events. So today we have three speakers, Mikhail Minikov, Oksana Shevel, and Andrei Kazakovich, who will consider these mass protests in each country. What do they have in common? How do they differ? And what are their short and midterm political consequences? In order to uh, ask questions, we ask that you email them or send them via Twitter. Twitter. Uh, you can send them by email to kennan at wilsoncenter.org, via Twitter at Kennan Institute, or on our Facebook page. Please include your name and affiliation uh, when you send your questions. So today we're going to begin with uh, Andrei Kazakovich. He is director of the Institute of Political Studies, Political Sphere. His research interests include Belarus's foreign policy, the development of political institutions in Belarus, and the history of Belarus and Eastern Europe. Uh, thank you, Andre. The floor is yours. Okay. Uh, thank you. Um, many thanks. Uh, and. Um, Thank you for possibility to speak here. Um, if we speak about uh, Belarus, Belarusian um, political crisis uh, of uh, this year, we should take into consideration that uh, Belarus uh, uh, is an uh, consolidated uh, authoritarian regime that we um, have um, this uh, consolidated authoritarian regime without any political competition for more than uh, 20 years. Uh, and uh, there is uh, pro practically only one real uh, powerful political institution in Belarus. It's a bureaucracy. Uh, and uh, a strong man, Alexander Lukashenko, at the top of this bureaucracy. Uh, there are no any uh, influential oppositional political parties at the moment. Uh, uh, there is no strong enough civil society to influence uh, uh, political events. Uh, there are no any pro-governmental even political parties uh, that are strong enough. Of course, uh, there are some several uh, in the parliament, but uh, they represent just 20% of um, um, MPs. And uh, most of them are extremely weak. Uh, speaking about uh, pro-governmental civil society organization, uh, we can say practic practically the same. Uh, uh, they are state affiliated and they are weak if we speak about them as an independent uh, political entity or some independent political force. So uh, we have a very simple political system uh, with a very strong bureaucracy uh, that control political, um, political events, political processes. And at the same time, uh, um, this bureaucracy controls uh, 
business uh, and uh, economic life in general. It controls um, cultural life uh, at a great extent, medias uh, and so on and so forth. Um, and uh, at the same time, this um, um, political uh, regime is more or less uh, repressive. This means that uh, it uses uh, violence, it uses uh, detentions um, um, at a great scale, if, if necessary, to uh, to um, to keep uh, political security, to preserve uh, political power. So um, this case is uh, very different. Uh, if we compare, for instance, it with uh, uh, Georgia, with Ukraine, with Armenia, with Kyrgyzstan, and so on. And uh, the main difference is that there were no any uh, political competition, and uh, uh, there is uh, there are no any alternative uh, strong political institutions uh, that are not subordinated to the state. Uh, that's why we have uh, more or less uh, uh, decentralized uh, political um, protests, um, protests without leaders, and uh, the main strategy of um, the protesters uh, is not to control territory, it's not to control some authorities, buildings, and so on, but just to, um, just to pressure, just to, just to, um, to, to imp just to make um, authorities to change their attitude to, to, uh, to uh, the society and to alternative political forces um, uh, through, Protest through showing disobedience through demonstration of um, um, of disagreement. Uh, that's that. This is probably the main difference uh, that we have uh, here in in Belarus. That's probably all for, for the beginning. Thank you very much, Andre. Uh, again, if you have questions, uh, you can begin submitting them. You can submit them via email to kennan at wilsoncenter.org, via Twitter at Kennan Institute, or on our Facebook page. Our next speaker is Oksana Shavel. Oksana is an Associate Professor of Political Science at Tufts University, and currently the President of the American Association for Ukrainian Studies and associate at the Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute of the Davis Center. Uh, her research projects examine the sources of citizenship policies in the post-Soviet, post-communist post states and also church-state relations in Ukraine. Uh, she is the author of Migration, Refugee Policy and State Building in Post-Communist Russia, uh, Post-Communist post Europe, excuse me. Uh, Oksana, the floor is yours. Um, thank you very much, William uh, and Mikhailo, for inviting me to join this panel. I'm just going, I think, follow up uh, on some of the things that Andrei said as far as drawing the distinction between Ukrainian and Belarusian cases. Um, uh, it would um, maybe taking a step back, um, if we think back um, to 2000, early 2000s, um, and the first wave of these colored revolutions that just like events in Belarus today were um, precipitated by rigged elections. 
at the time, political scientists, and here I'm specifically thinking of Michael McFall's a typology of seven criteria for successful electoral revolution. And I think this question of successful is also important because when we say electoral revolution was successful, kind of in the shorter term, it means that the protesters were able to achieve their objectives, like have a leader who rigged elections, agreed to revolt or step down and so forth, right? Which is essentially what Belarusians are demanding now. And as I looked, like before I talk today, as I looked at these seven criteria, and just for the listeners, I'm going to briefly mention what they are. So McFall mentions um, for a dictator to be forced out by protesters. Um, these seven conditions need to be present. So the, the authoritarian, um, the rule has to be actually semi-authoritarian. And that's exactly goes to the point that was just made earlier, that there has to be some sort of arena of political competition, some modicum of the opposition, some, you know, as opposed to complete authoritarianism, right? Uh, so this is one difference that clearly between Ukraine and Belarus that there are no opposition political parties. There is no sort of locus of opposition in any of the state institutions like in Ukraine, the Rada always had, um, you know, some opposition forces were always represented there, right? So this is one criteria that is not there. Another criteria that also McFall mentions to be very important that again, we don't see in Belarus is what he calls divisions among so-called guys with guns, right? Essentially in the security apparatus, be it the police, the secret service, right? The military. So essentially the, the law enforcement, right? That the, the, all dictators depend on to um, ultimately re remain in power and crush protesters violently um, as needed, right? Um, so in the cases where uh, protesters were able to force out the dictators, there was some sort of division between these guys with guns, quote unquote, right? Again, um, we do not, do not see that in Belarus and we did see it in Ukraine, both in 2004 and in, 2000, um, in 2014, right? Um, and uh, this united and organized opposition, that's actually quite interesting point because, um, you know, McFall has argued that it is necessary to have united and organized opposition. Uh, but, you know, as Andre was just saying, um, exactly because opposition in Belarus was absent, we sort of have much more kind of grassroots um, unorganized, right, not centralized um, protest movement, right. But then, you know, some other uh, people have argued, and I think it's certainly a legitimate question to consider, right, maybe it's actually not necessarily a bad thing that we don't have kind of a single coordinating center of the opposition. It makes it potentially more difficult for the, for the authorities to decapitate the opposition. And here I would just add something to what Andre was mentioning earlier in Ukraine. Um, again, it depends what um, kind of what body of research you look at the Ukrainian protests, but I think, you know, multiple scholars have argued that even in Ukraine protest, especially the Maidan of 2014, was quite disorganized as well. So it was not the case that any kind of one party or one, you know, political leader was able to actually control or sort of set the agenda for the Maidan. So I think there is a perception um, even actually, I would say even in Belarus, uh, and that's probably in part uh, because of the prevalence of the Russian TV media. I've read a lot of kind of these blogs and commentary where, you know, people in Belarus exchange their views. And I was struck um, by how, like, first of all, how negatively they perceive Maidan, how they keep repeating, we don't want the Maidan, right? And kind of this perception that Maidan in Ukraine was this sort of far-right kind of violent conspiracy, which is, you know, it has been Russian claim all along. But of course, as we know from research studies of the Maidan in Ukraine 2014 have also showed that there are there have been a lot of divisions, kind of ebb and flow, and you know, different groups joined in in different periods of time, and there are explanations as to why you know eventually violent kind of outcomes uh, took place. But it's like it's a great oversimplification to claim that it was some sort of like organized or you know like radical nationalist movement uh, always to begin with, right? So again, so this is not exactly very optimistic. Um, 
sort of scenario, because again, going back to this McFall's seven factors, we are lacking three very important ones, or two at least. We are lacking kind of this semi-authoritarian rule, which created various platforms for the opposition. It also created things such as, say, people who were persecuted for their participation in the protests, um, that um, they had some other avenue to, say, even make a living, right? Like if there is more uh, sort of private businesses as opposed to state employment, right, where people can, um, you know, get means of existence, right? Again, these sorts of things in more authoritarian society and the one that had, as in the case of Lukashenko's Belarus, there was greater state control, including of economic activity, right? It sort of makes it difficult for opposition. And this uh, lack of division, uh, at least from what we can see so far um, among um, the guys with the guns. So, um, so maybe I'll end here just, you know, for the sake of time, but there is certainly a lot more to discuss about the protests themselves. Uh, and to what extent this kind of disorganized nature of the protest um, is, um, you know, potentially a strength as opposed to weakness. Um, right. So uh, maybe I'll end here and then we'll have more of an exchange. Thank you. Thank you very much, Oksana. Uh, our third speaker is Mikhailo Minikov. Uh, I just want to remind you that if you have questions for our guests, you can submit them by email, kenan at wilsoncenter.org, via Twitter at Kennan Institute, or on our Facebook page. Uh, I'm so pleased to introduce Mikhailo Minikov. Uh, he is the Kennan Institute Senior Advisor on Ukraine and Editor-in-Chief of Focus Ukraine, the Kennan Institute's Ukraine-focused blog. Uh, he is, for 18 years, he has taught at the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies at the National University of Kiev Mahila. Uh, his main research interests include uh, political modernization in Eastern Europe and theories and practices of revolution. So without a, uh, further ado, uh, Mikhailo, the floor is yours. Uh, thank you, Will, and thank you, Andrea and Oksana. It was very interesting to, to listen to your reports, but uh, I would probably look a little bit further in the beginning of this protest political culture that was probably boiling and was created uh, in the end of Perestroika. So it's uh, connected to the post, uh, this early post-Soviet periods when new societies, Belarusian society, Ukrainian, Georgian, or Russian, valued, specifically valued elections. And this first experience of free and fair elections in 1989 and then at the all union level, and then at Republican levels in 1990s, uh, it was all creating a specific political culture where uh, elections had to be really free and fair. This idea of, or ideal of uh, the West with free and fair elections and that we need to create West in our societies was very powerful. And whenever we see the, uh, the violation of electoral uh, rules, th there is always a moral ground for the protest. And you can see literally at loyal level, at local level, at Republican level that uh, the protest, political protests, were appearing where the elections were rigged. And it didn't change even with 10 or uh, 20 years after the dissolution of Soviet Union. For a long time uh, in, in Russia, the, the elections remained like the last, <clears throat> the last uh, democratic institute before it was also taken over. 
In Ukraine, uh, the, the Orange Revolution was basically also connected to the, uh, the, the, the wrong elections, the, the, the rigged elections. So here it's very important that politics, moral, uh, moral ground for the protest and the protest itself are in, interconnected. And it creates certain contradictory, but also very powerful uh, energy uh, for the pol political process. That unites, it's political, but it's not partisan protest. This is very much important. It brings together different uh, social groups uh, in spite of very different, uh, very different interests and ideas and ideologies. And here we, we can see it's been repeated in uh, Georgia several times. It's been repeated also in today's Kyrgyzstan, although with div different level of violence. And that's very important, that uh, part of the moral ground is peacefulness. As soon as there is an element of radicalization, it immediately creates this loss of moral ground for the protesters. Uh, and another very important uh, commonality, the common roots are connected with something specifically post-Soviet contemporary. It's the contemporary media. For example, the Orange Revolution in Ukraine was very much connected to the TV channel number five. I still remember how the, there were huge screens brought to the Maidan and uh, part, part of the purpose of Maidan, part of the debate was connected to what was happening in the uh, TV station. Then later the Euromaidan was connected to Facebook and today's uh, protests in Belarus are connected to the Telegram channels. That's a very important part uh, of the commonalities. However, there are also very important differences. And uh, Andrei has mentioned this, uh, uh, th that the, the, the uh, is very decentralized. There's no center, no structure, and there's permanent peaceful pressure. And it's really amazing. It's unique, I would say, that for a very long time, there, there are mass protests thousands, tens of thousands of people that still uh, refrain for the use of uh, violence, that still goes out and it's over 50 days. It's also unprecedented. And there, is there are no attempts of taking over of the public institutions. Like if you, you look, it's already in the middle of December uh, during Euromaidan in 2013, there, there are several uh, public institutions taken by the protesters. And it's already the first uh, indicator of uh, violent uh, and radicalization of protest. This is not happening in, in Belarus. Or these tactics of water, what uh, the protesters in Belarus uh, call it. So if you have uh, an issue, an obstacle to gather and to protest in certain public space, like on square of uh, victory, then you go to a different place, but you still go and you constantly move around Minsk or around other towns. Uh, and in Maidan times, it was critically important to keep uh, the post of Maidan. You even have these barricades, you, you, you create a fortress out of Maidan in order to crystallize the pro, uh, protest, to keep it on the ground permanently. 
So these are two very important cultural issues, or the differences. Uh, and of course, there's a different role of opposition leaders. There's a different role of security services. And Oksana was uh, very uh, wise to bringing this different, um, uh, di different characteristics of a successful revolution. And in, uh, in our case, I remember how we did it in Harvard University 10, year, 10 years ago, yes. Uh, when we tried to understand which of these uh, factors are core and which are additional. And I remember that the, in a result of a lengthy discussion, we came up to the conclusion that the two cause, uh, root causes are there for a revolution, for a peaceful protest to succeed. First is a popular opposition figure that could unite, organize different opposition groups well, parties or non-parties, but uh, active groups around him or herself and uh, be the face of the protest, be the person of the protest. And the second root cause was security apparatus that is divided from within, which is unloyal or at least neutral. In Belarus, we don't have this uh, two, uh, uh, two root causes right now. Uh, the, the visible figures of protest are abroad and the security services seems to be very consolidated and loyal to the ruler. I think uh, this leads to a certain number of political consequences. It looks like the new, new civil experience, new political experience of uh, Belarusian citizens and the create lower level of legitimacy for the today's uh, authorities, which will demand more repressive regime further on. It's gonna be a very different regime that existed, that existed before the elections. And this is very important to understand. There's a new opposition. If usually opposition was connected to these national Democrats of early nineties uh, and still these names, that uh, were popping up. Now we have new leaders, new groups, new experience, new generation in opposition, and part of it outside of country. And uh, there's a bigger picture about which I uh, recently published just two days ago in uh, the Focus Ukraine is the, the, what I call destabilization of authoritarian belt. And Belarus is the weak link in this belt and it creates a dynamics that may probably change Eastern Europe very much. And I still uh, stop at this point. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mikhailo. Uh, I'm going to, evidently we're having problems with uh, our Zoom connection and getting questions from our, our audience. Um, in case there's anyone out there, uh, I am going to say that if you have a question, you can email them to Kenan, Kenan at wilsoncenter.org or Twitter at Kenan Institute or on our Facebook page. But since um, evidently we're not able to gather questions, I think we're just going to, uh, I'll start with a few questions for our speakers and then we can have our discussion amongst ourselves and see where these protests are leading. So Andre. Uh, I'd like to make several comments. Yes, you can, you can, if you, if you want to make some comments, you can feel free to make some comments right now. 
Yeah, uh, concerning uh, to what uh, Oksana uh, have said, um, if we speak about private sector in Belarus, it's it's not so small actually. It's not so uh, bad situation concerning its involvement in uh, the current uh, protests, uh, and. Um, According to official statistics, uh, about a half of population, um, or a, a, about a half of uh, people, um, are employed by private uh, companies, uh, but not by state. Probably um, this was, uh, or this is one of uh, uh, the one of important reasons why. Uh, this uh, protest, uh, protest uh, uh, took place now, uh, take place now, but uh, uh, it was impossible, uh, for instance, 10 years ago when private sector wasn't so, so influential and uh, uh, so important. Um, and if we uh, speak about comparison, I think that Belarusian situation uh, is more like to uh, the solution of Soviet Union uh, or probably to um, to solidarity in the beginning of uh, 80s, but not to uh, color revolutions, because it's uh, actually uh, has a very different um, logic, uh, very different uh, uh, reasons and different structure. Um, so probably all uh, these uh, points that you have mentioned concerning successful um, color revolutions uh, can't be applied uh, to to Bill recent case because it's just uh, some something different. Uh, it's more similar, uh, as I have mentioned, to uh, the solution of Soviet Union, to the solution of Soviet bloc, probably to uh, to solidarity or something like like this. And the main strategy of uh, the protest movement is to uh, to put uh, long-term pressure on the authorities. Uh, there are no illusions that uh, uh, some changes uh, uh, can happen quickly, and only long-term pressure is uh, the only uh, the only mechanism to to change uh, the situation, because uh, at the moment uh, there are no any other mechanisms just to, 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 to take power, just to put long-term um, pressure. And concerning what uh, Mikhail um, uh, mentioned, I disagree that uh, now we don't have or some figures um, uh, that could be um, the representatives of uh, uh, the movement, of the protest movement. Uh, at least uh, Svetlana Tikhanovskaya could be mentioned and uh, Kalesnikova. Kalesnikova uh, is in jail now, uh, Tikhanovskaya in Vilnius, uh, she is abroad, but uh, it seems that uh, they, they are getting more and more influence uh, or more and more popularity as a symbols of uh, these, uh, of, uh, these protests. So the situation is not so, uh, so bad probably concerning a symbolic representation of uh, the protest movement. Thank you.
Can I jump in? Since Please do, Sanna. Yes. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, I appreciate, Andrea, your point about the economy. I think if that's what you're saying is true, that's actually good news, right, for Belarus, ultimately, because that's exactly kind of how this argument goes in the um, sort of is an explanatory factor of whether or not the protest movement is more likely to be successful is exactly when there is less state control and therefore there is more possibility for the opposition to both make a living as individuals and to receive funding potentially from private businesses, right? So if we see that on the rise in Belarus, I mean, that's, you know, as you said, maybe one difference between what's now and what was the case in 2010 um, you know, and 2006. But only, I mean, I'm kind of intrigued with this comparison, like, is it more like colored revolutions or is it more like solidarity and the end of the Soviet Union. And I'm not sure. I mean, I'll just sort of say, like, kind of just listening to your remarks and kind of thinking on my feet. I think it has a bit of both, right? Because on the one hand, like electoral revolutions, and unlike the end of Soviet Union, there is a very concrete goal, right? Like there were rigged elections, and the opposition says, look, these elections are rigged, the candidate who declared himself a winner is not the one who won, and that needs to be corrected. That was the case in electoral revolutions as well, right? There was very concrete kind of offense and very concrete solution to the offense, which was different from something like, you know, let's say Soviet Union, we want sovereignty, we want independence, maybe we're not sure, right? Like, what is it that we want? We want something different, right? Like, it's it sort of to, seems to me like goal-wise, it is actually more similar to the colored revolution. But I would agree with you that strategy-wise, it is probably more similar to things like solidarity and kind of this anti-Soviet kind of movements in late perestroika period, because opposition did not have the levers, institutional, political, sort of security, you know, what have you, to influence the regime. And really the only kind of lever was this moral lever, right? And, you know, people on the street protesting, as you said, putting long-term pressure. So um, I guess that's what kind of be my qualifier to what you were saying. I agree in, you know, that there are some similarities with the uh, solidarity and the like, sort of these big popular movements of the late communist period. But I think there are also similarities as far as goals and sort of immediate precipitating causes of the protests and short-term goals with the colored revolution. Mikhaila, I, I, I see you wanted to inter, uh, inter, intervene. Yes. yes, thank you. Well, uh, I would like to return to this issue of consolidating figure in the opposition. I fully agree that Tikhanovsky is a very visible figure, but outside of country right now, and Kalesnikova, unfortunately, is uh, in prison. And the issue is that there is no uh, consolidating figure there on the ground. So this is probably why this idea of semi-authoritarian is so important, that the opposition remains partially autonomous on the ground and there's a recognition of some legitimacy to it. But in, in the case of Belarus, it's of course not uh, there. But it, I, I would like to, uh, to draw attention to this certain intelligence of uh, the author authorities right now. They uh, make several strategic steps in order to destroy the uh, protests, partially by pushing out of the country the uh, leaders of opposition. Uh, Kalesnikova herself made an effort to not to be thrown away from the country, right? Ihanovskaya was sent out. And uh, by doing it, authorities uh, make the opposition and the protest mo movement weaker. But not only this, by, by forcing uh, uh, there's permanent uh, attempts of provoking violence from the, uh, the protesters. You can constantly see these provocations. Uh, it's unusual that uh, protesters are so smart that they, no, they do not repeat with the violence to the uh, provocations. 
But this is very unusual because as soon as uh, the, the, the provocation would be successful, this moral ground that unites people will be gone. And these two strategies uh, of authorities are in place and they work only partially. So my question, uh, Andre, you can jump in. Varshich comments just about uh, just an additional a commonality of our situation with the dissolution of Soviet Union is that uh, Belarus in a deep economic crisis at the moment. It uh, wasn't, uh, for instance, during uh, Ukrainian first revolution, during uh, Georgian revolution, and so on. Uh, but uh, it, it's 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 a very important uh, point concerning contemporary situation in Belarus. So my, my initial question here, I think it was directed to Andre, is how long can this status quo last? How long can you get tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people protesting um, and not actually kind of finalize a, a result? Is, is this going to be, you mentioned, or others mentioned the importance of a long-term strategy, but is how long can it last without no obvious sign of change? Nobody knows. Actually, nobody knows. Uh, but uh, uh, but it seems that um, some kind of uh, deep uh, political mobilization of uh, people in Belarus uh, uh, took place uh, in the in, in spring of this year, and we have that mass ma that um, popular political activity. Um, began in the in spring and now we have just uh, another wave of these uh, pro, uh, these political uh, activities so uh, i don't think that uh, uh, these uh, movement just uh, will uh, disappear in several weeks or or months probably there were uh, there will be some kind of uh, uh, decrease of activity but then um, some a uh, new wave is uh, very probable. As I have mentioned, uh, now we have uh, uh, have very difficult economic situation in the country. Uh, actually, uh, um, economic crisis, and uh, probably these uh, economic and um, social uh, background will bring uh, some new um, some new. Uh, protest uh, activities will increase uh, uh, internal pressure. And uh, probably the additional point should be taken into consideration, it's uh, international pressure on the regime. Um, at the moment, uh, uh, European Union and uh, the United States uh, did, uh, didn't recognize Lukashenko as a legitimate um, uh, president. That's mean that um, economic situation uh, in the country and, or in, in general possibilities uh, for uh, the authorities to, uh, to get money abroad um, uh, were reduced considerably. So it's uh, the additional problem. Uh, and um, Russia um, uh, is uh, also uh, the additional problem for the authorities because uh, for Russia it's very important uh, to to force Lukashenko to um, 
to implement some kind of political reform uh, in the next year. Uh, and uh, it's uh, and any political reform, it's uh, a great risk for uh, for uh, for Lukashenko. So, uh, if we mm, see this situation uh, in this. If, if we take into consideration all these uh, different um, uh, factors or different uh, things like protest movement, economic situation and uh, external pressure, uh, I think that uh, probability that um, uh, some reforms or some changes will take place uh, in uh, the next year or probably in, the, in this year uh this uh, this possibility is uh, rather probable and uh it, it's very difficult to uh to 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 see uh, how um this system uh, will survive without any considerable uh, changes you mentioned Sorry. Go ahead, yes. I just wanted to jump in kind of on this, um, again, sort of thinking of comparisons with Ukraine based on what Andrei was just saying. And I wonder, I mean, uh, probably Mikhail remembers when, um, I mean, obviously Euromaidan was a shorter kind of duration, right? But there was also ebb and flow as to the same question, William, that you asked, like, um, what is the long-term strategy, right? Because for a while, like during the Maidan protest, it wasn't sort of clear, like even how any of the goals could be achieved, right? And there were also concerns that sort of the protest would, would weather down, like, would, you know, and, and there was also kind of this, like fewer people showed up. And some even argued, I think, not entirely unconvincingly that had Yanukovych not, not sent this riot police on the students, like in the middle of the night or whatever it was, November 30th, right? Like maybe like it would have kind of like fizzled away, right? So there is this dilemma, which I think authoritarian leaders have, and like Lukashenko, right? Like how much do you repress these protests that sort of objectively speaking are not probably a danger to your rule, right? In other words, like if you do nothing, and I actually remember we had um, we had a conference in Kiev during the protests in, in 2013, and one of the American scholars there who studies protests, like sort of thinking like, what would Yanukovych do, what's likely? And he's like, Yanukovych should do nothing. If he does nothing, nothing will happen. And maybe Yanukovych should have taken his advice, right? But he didn't, right? That's the thing. We sort of had mm -hmm. this kind of like the protests ebbing down, and then the regime would do something very, uh, like untoward, right? Some kind of violence, right? Like arrest, like in Ukraine was Euromaidan, right? Or like students were beat up or this like assault, you know, and that sort of energizes the protest. And I wonder, you know, um, if we might see sort of this ebb and flow in, in, in Belarus as well, like Lukashenko, clearly the fact that they've been arresting people left and right for no cause kind of gives, you know, brings more people to the streets, right? But would um, yes. he overplay exactly. his hand in other words, right? Like, is he okay just sort of having these people, tens of thousands of people show up every Sunday for the next, I don't know, six months? four months, next year, next two years, like, is this like, or is he gonna do something to just like kind of decisively bring an end to it? And if he does, you know, what might be the reaction? And I think the Russia connection is also really interesting. And again, here, like I'm much less of an expert on Belarusian kind of foreign policy matters. But I wonder if Lukashenko has an option that again, say somebody like Yanukovych didn't have, to say, do something drastic and form some kind of like political union with Russia that would completely changed kind of like geopolitics of this, right, of this situation. That Yanukovych really, I think it was like a red line that even this association, backtracking from association agreement, what brought people in to the streets to begin with. So there was only so far Yanukovych, say, could go towards kind of getting, you know, closer with Russia. And it seems like to me, maybe I'm wrong, that Lukashenko has kind of more room to maneuver here, right? If his real goal were to keep his power, right, um, and he would do some sort of like, 
you know, reshape whatever that union state that they have. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Like, I would be interested to hear what Andrei thinks about that. Uh, yeah, um, I don't think that um, uh, it's uh, um, that we should should expect uh, any kind of uh, Euro, uh, any kind of uh, new uh, agreements with Russia concerning union state, concerning integration, and so on. And there there are two uh, obstacles. Uh, the first one is that it's very uh, risky for Putin now uh, to engage Lukashenko in such agreements because uh, Lukashenko's uh, legitimacy is not so visible. Uh, he had has a great number of internal problems, and uh, all uh, agreements, all um, um, new institutions that uh, would be created as a result of such uh, negotiations. Uh, uh, would be just um, um, rejected by uh, the absolute majority of uh, uh, Belarusians. Uh, this is the first point. And uh, the next point is uh, international legitimacy. Now Lukashenko uh, is not recognized as a, a re-elected president by European Union and uh, United States. That means that all agreements that he um, uh, will um, will sign with Putin uh, will be not recognized by um, European Union, United States, and many other countries in the world. Uh, so um, this is uh, the, the great problem for for Russia, uh, and I don't think that they uh, will uh, try to integrate uh, Belarus in some such circumstances because. Um, uh, it uh, will bring a great number of uh, problems uh, without any visible benefits. Um, so uh, that's why I don't think that uh, um, such, uh, such initiatives concerning integration or um, uh, new negotiations um, uh, are really, really possible before new elections and before uh, the Belarusian crisis will be solved uh, this way or the other. So one of my questions is from your perspective, Andre, uh, how long can Putin stay on the sidelines? How long can he wait and watch as things develop in Belarus? And what is a tipping point for Putin that he has to somehow become more aggressive or intervene or do something in Belarus to make sure that it stays within the Eurasian, the common Eurasian space. Um, concerning Putin and, um, uh, you know, um, in general, uh, Belarusian people are pro-Russian. This means that uh, a great number of people think that um, union or, or close uh, relations with Russia is better than close relations with the European Union, for instance. Uh, so for uh, Russia, it's very risky to implement any uh, aggressive measures against uh, Belarusian society because uh, it's... Uh, um, could uh, it can 
bring to new Ukraine, you know, and um, um, it's 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 you know very very sensitive thing for uh, for uh, authorities in Moscow because uh, they understand that uh, uh, they they should support uh, Lukashenko because of some reasons because uh, they. Uh, they need some time to prepare a new figure or maybe to reorganize the recent political system to influence uh, it um, uh, in different ways. But um, at the same time, any aggression, any um, uh, aggressive involvement uh, could, uh, could change uh, the situation in Belarus. Uh, and uh, Belarus uh, um, uh, will be not so pro-Russian or even anti-Russian. Uh, that's why I don't think that uh, Putin will will act uh, aggressively. Uh, and, and yeah. go, ahead, go ahead, Andre. Uh, and if, and the first part of your question, could, could you repeat? Um, just, just how, how long, I think you've already answered the first part of the question. And the question was really, how long does Putin remain on the sidelines? Oh, okay. And what was it to, to try to change the situation? Yeah. Um, and I think you've answered that very eloquently uh, uh, on that point. Mikhailo, you, uh, you have... Yes, I also would like to remind about this opportunistic uh, approach of Putin to many crises. So he really gives it a time to, to develop and then Kremlin looks for opportunities how to win it. And I think uh, Putin can wait for, for a longer time. Uh, if you look at the situation right now, uh, Belarus is much more dependent on Russia than ever before. Especially if you pay attention what regime, uh, what Lukashenko was doing in 2014-15, the change of security strategy the block for pro-Russian NGOs, the creation of bigger distance in security services, distance from Russia. So it was all showing that regime was trying to defend itself. And right now, uh, Lukashenko is much more vulnerable. There, there are less ties with Europe, with Belarus and Poland, and more dependence on Russia. So in a way, uh, Kremlin seems to be winning so far in having weaker regime, a more dependent Belarus. Oksana, uh, from your perspective, what are the lessons of Ukraine that now apply to Belarus? You talked about the fact that you know the Belarusian uprising uh, doesn't have a leader. Uh, and you compare that to situations uh, in Belarus. Uh, what lessons do you think Belarus can take away from Bel uh, from Belarus can take away from Ukraine? And what? Yeah, well, it's I think there are probably many, but just kind of thinking about the protests, I think one lesson, and it's not just for Belarus, but I think for any protests anywhere, is that sort of that to be prepared for dissolutionment. And I think we clearly see that in Ukraine, right? In other words. I mean, Belarus, to begin with, the protesters have an issue, like how do you achieve your objectives to begin with, right? But even if, say, the short-term objective is achieved, as in like you have new elections, right? And maybe Lukashenko is no longer president, right? 
like this kind of the civil society building, I think it's more than just people kind of spontaneously mobilizing, right, and being on the street and then sort of going home and kind of saying like, okay, we've done our part and now like the state or the leaders or somebody else, the parties are going to sort of, you know, do the right thing, right? I think we see that in Ukraine over and over that the expectations that the protesters had have been crushed, right? Like for the clean government, less corruption, you know, like better economy, like more accountable government, you know, responsible courts, like pretty much any of these demands, right? Like, because, you know, again, we know from uh, from research that yes, like association agreement was kind of immediate precipitating cause, but people were kind of wanted to have quote unquote a normal state, right? And I think they, in a way, I'm not even sure that, I, I wanna suggest something, I'm not even sure I myself believe this, but um, it may seem exactly because I think Belarusian protesters are unlikely to achieve the objectives in the short term, right? And they actually have to kind of sustain mobilization and organize. Maybe there is now a possibility, sort of like silver lining to this whole conundrum of the civil society building kind of from the bottom up, right? In a sustained way, at a local level, be it like in their residence, you know, buildings, and we already see this, right? Like people who live in nearby apartments, right? And sort of instead of kind of like this force of protests, bringing down the regime, which is like a big victory, right? But then kind of not being able to uh, get an accountable state anyway, right? Like, and I wonder, and again, I'm, as I said, I'm not even sure myself, I believe this, but I think it to me is kind of strikes me as a neat idea that maybe there is some silver lining to this. So the Belarusians actually do have to sustain it for, many months to come, right? Or maybe even years, right? Like this sort of pressure on the regime without really expecting that the regime would cave in because as we said, all of these structural weaknesses of the regime are actually not there, right? No splitting the guy with guns, no opposition party, no state institution that is backing the protests and so forth, right? But maybe they can actually kind of like, you know, build civil society structures that could then persist after the immediate political outcome is achieved, right? And could actually put pressure um, from the bottom up um, on state officials and state agencies at all at all levels, right? And exactly because there isn't this kind of regional divide in Belarus that, that we saw in Ukraine, maybe that might also work out in the long term, right, to the advantage. I know that's a very optimistic spin <laughs> on the whole situation, but I'll put it out there anyway. Okay. So Mikhailo mentioned a very important point about the security services and that they essentially are still there and are essentially haven't been divided and seemingly are supporting uh, Lukashenko, even though the seams of the security services are so upsetting uh, that uh, one would think that at some point there might be disagreements and dissension in the ranks. So my question for you, Andre, is essentially, you know, the, the crucial turning point is when the security services abandon the leader. Um, and is there any indication that this is a possibility in the short or medium term? Uh, yes, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's very good question. Um, there are two um, points that uh, should be mentioned concerning Belarusian security forces. First of all, uh, they are dependent on economic situation in general. It's very difficult to, to keep um, uh, these uh, agencies loyal without financial resources. Uh, and uh, it's not just uh, money for uh, those who work in these structures, but for their relatives, for, uh, for, for a great, great number of uh, persons who are, who are involved in, in the economy. 
uh, and uh, we see that uh, this situation is, uh, is not uh, so good. And uh, the second point is uh, Russia influence, because Russia influence uh, on uh, uh, Belarusian um, law enforcement agencies and, and, and is, is great. And uh, its position is, uh, could be uh, can be crucial in future uh, concerning uh, its loyalty to, to Lukashenko. Uh, and uh, now um, Russia promotes uh, constitutional reform in Belarus. And uh, according to Russia plan, it uh, uh, will, the referendum <clears throat> on constitution will be held in the next, next year. And we will see how this Russia plan uh, will be collided with the uh, will of Belarusian authorities to postpone this referendum, to postpone this uh, constitutional reform um, for probably two, three years. Uh, and this um, collision, this conflict uh, could bring some kind of uh, uh, disorganization of uh, law enforcement uh, agencies. Uh, in uh, in in the next year, actually, economic crisis and um, conflict with Russia. So we will see. It, it's not so simple uh, for uh, Lukashenko. It it uh, won't be so uh, easy for Lukashenko to to keep um, uh, law enforcement uh, agencies as loyal as they is now in the next year at least uh, to, to my observations, and at least if we take into consideration uh, these uh, additional uh, points that, uh, that uh, greatly influence uh, uh, law enforcement uh, agencies. Do you think a central leader needs to emerge in these protests in order to be successful, or is the decentralized? Uh, you know, lack of leader, lack of a, a single yeah. leader, advantageous uh, as, as others have mentioned. Um, the single leader could be abroad. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, it's impossible to have. Uh, it's impossible to have um, uh, the leader in the country at the moment. Uh, so um, uh, the answer to your question is that now it's impossible because of repressions, um, because um, authorities uh, have, um, uh, have, have forced enough to imprison any person. Um, uh, but um, if uh, the situation uh, will change, probably because of international pressure, probably because of some other events, of course, uh, such leaders uh, will appear and these these leaders uh, will be united I think because uh, uh, this process this protest uh, uh, has a very simple agenda it's not just uh, it's just about new elections it's not about uh, you know geopolitics it's not about economy and uh, some other issues uh, that uh, uh, can divide uh, people. So, yeah. Okay. Um, Oksana and Mikhailo, uh, 
are, are, are there any other lessons that you want to highlight uh, from the Ukrainian experience? I thought it was very interesting that Andre said that this wasn't, for example, a color revolution. Um, but were the color revolutions the ones that actually have succeeded, at least in overthrowing regimes? Uh, and what would what could be learned from the experience in Ukraine uh, and other color rev revolutions? Um, well, Oksana was Oksana was already bringing this uh, issue of disillusionment, yeah. will, and that's mm -hmm. probably the the lesson for for everyone. So don't uh, well be prepared that success of a change of government, for example, will bring the needed, uh, the needed change in terms of political system. So if you want to have free democratic uh, Belarus, it's a much longer term process. Yes. And then uh, I, I think these lessons learned for, for Belarus from Ukraine, they also have, a, have an issue. Probably that's a, a, already like an old uh, idea, but it still works. For a long time, when uh, Belarus and Ukraine were compared, there was this obvious uh, difference. Belarus has a state and weak, a strong state and weak nation, and Ukraine had weak state and strong nation. And uh, today we suddenly see that there is a strong civil society in Belarus. Well, I think this uh, persistence of protest is connected that civil society organizations are genuinely uh, authentic. They are based and connected with local communities, with local business. And uh, it was a surprise for everyone, I think, also for Belarusians themselves, that they have it. Uh, in Ukraine, we, our civil society is much more fragmented and there are different types of dependencies on external players, on internal players, and it wouldn't work as well for, for the Belarus. Uh, so I think that there, there are, there's a Ukrainian experience from which Belarusian colleagues, politicians, civil, uh, civil society activists, intellectuals can learn. But of course, Ukrainian experience should not be a dominanta, a dominant uh, for understanding the Belarusian protest. Yeah, I just wanted to bring like, if just maybe one point, and kind of not even a point, but more like a question. We didn't really talk much, and I know we're almost out of time. Um, do we go until one or until one thirty? To till one. Oh, till one. Okay, yeah. So just a few minutes. I've learned that there's a a a disruption in on Zoom service. Uh, in the eastern half of the United States. So, uh, we are recording this conversation and we will mm -hmm. make it to a program that people, yeah. can do. but unfortunately, we don't have any other questions other than what we're formulating. Yeah. I just wanted to bring kind of one issue slash question that we haven't really talked that much about kind of the role of nationalism in these protests, right? And how, like, to what extent there are similarities and differences across the two cases that we're talking talking about, right? And one thing that struck me, I mean, as, as kind of similar, I mean, of course, it's undeniable that in Ukraine, say, like, ethnic nationalism has been stronger, and there are more of these sort of more radical nationalism that we don't see in Belarus. But what struck me as similar is that the autocrats in both countries are, are presenting the opposition as some sort of, like, radical nationalist kind of bad, you know, potentially, you know, hearers to the fascists and so forth. And in Belarus, it's this issue with the flag, right? The protesters are using this white and red flag, which, you know, 
again, allegedly the official, you know, rhetoric is that this is like the flag that, you know, the collaborators of the Nazis used and like bad flag and like nothing, you know, redeeming value about the flag, right? And it's sort of interesting how, you know, the protesters who reject, I mean, most of them would reject this particular legacy and yet they kind of incorporate the flag in their protest repertoire and in a way sort of the flag acquired the new meaning. And we saw that, I think, to some extent, I don't know, Mikhail, if you degree in Ukraine, right? Because this like glory to Ukraine, like glory to the hero slogans, which were historically very sort of radical, you know, nationalist, you know, movement in the Second World War, which again, many Russian speaking protesters like in Kiev and elsewhere didn't necessarily identify with, right? But the slogans kind of acquired new meaning in the course of this protest and sort of the content of kind of nationalism, national identity have changed somewhat, right? And I wonder like, I mean, again, we don't really have much time, but the kind of interesting strikes me interesting, like what is Belarusian national identity now? Like, has it changed in any way as a result of this protest? Are there some similar kind of dynamics at play? And I find this flag, flag business really interesting. Uh, actually, I think that uh, we, now we see uh, emergence of the new Belarusian civil nation. Uh, and um, practically all elements of uh, national identity is under redefining. Um, you, you have mentioned um, red and white flag. And actually, I, I agree. It's uh, the same. Uh, uh, it's the same uh, as uh, in, uh, as it was in Ukraine. Uh, now, these um, the meaning of this flag uh, was uh, is changing. It's better to say is changing. Um, previously, it was. Uh, I mean, in the beginning of uh, of in the beginning of nineties, it was uh, the flag of nationalists. Uh, during the last 20 years, it was the flag of opposition. And now it's uh, just national flag. Um, it's, but, uh, so I think that uh, these, uh, these uh, actually the new phenomena. Uh, but at the same time, uh, for instance, we see that uh, Belarusian language, has its uh, importance was reduced during these protests. Uh, now we practically don't have any Belarusian speaking uh, leaders. Most of them use Russian and most of them even can't speak uh, Belarusian. Uh, so yes, it's just some new identity uh, uh, is, um, um, is forming or is, uh, is uh, uh, is uh, being created during uh, these uh, these uh, protests, uh, uh, and uh, the essence of uh, this identity, I think, uh, will be um, citizenship, um, some some and 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 some democracy. I mean, so, some um, democratic values, uh, self-governing, uh, uh, and so on. But but of course, it's very difficult to to predict. Uh, uh, how uh, these uh, these um, uh, phenomena will will evolve uh, in uh, in coming in in uh, in months or uh, in 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 a year. Well, we're going to have to bring this conversation to a close. I couldn't help but notice Oksana's sign right behind her. Uh, Keep calm and carry on. Uh, I think that, that applies both to the situation in Belarus and to our uh, conversation today. Uh, we were able to have really a very fruitful and insightful conversation about developments in Belarus and comparisons to other post-Soviet states. And we will uh, put this conversation online 
and promote it and so that everyone will have a chance to listen um, and maybe ask supplemental questions going forward. But thank you all for a very insightful and thank interesting conversation. Thank you. And thank you. Um, we will um, get this uh, conversation posted and circulated on social media. So thanks very much to everybody. Okay, thank you very much. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.